0: Let's get the show on the road. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. Are not the government. The government is not us. How are we doing? Doing okay, everybody? I hope so. Man, there's been just like a whole bunch of bullshit going on. It is, uh, it's really annoying having to look at the news cycle right now, especially because we have the YouTube shooting and we have... all these other things happening that that everyone wants to avoid talking about. So, of course, the news cycle's back to, uh... Back to talking about, you know, fuck Trump and, and, uh, the Stormy Daniels and all this other stuff that nobody actually gives a shit about. That's one of the things that, that's the most annoying about trying to do a, a show that does cover news to a certain extent. That's not the main point of the show. But it used to be, the show used to be more news-based than topic-based, and that was a a decision that I made to change it. Because frankly, if you want news the way that I would have covered it, you just gotta listen to the No Agenda show. (laughs) So, I decided to quit biting off them and just start talking about things that I actually knew about. Basically all of this to say fuck television news. Thank you. Thank you, Justin Robert Young. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the news, but we're not going to be talking too much about it because there's just a lot of bullshit. Um, I think the first thing I want to talk about is the YouTube shooting. Just gonna go over a quick timeline, just the AP's timeline from it, because geez, it's it's just no one's really covering it at all. So I have to cover it a little bit, and and the reason no one's covering it's because it's the kind of person who we're told never never actually commit these shootings. It's it's exactly the kind of person that um, everyone says is supposed to be the more well-adjusted, um, less violent person. Basically, we're told that only white men commit shootings. And apparently, and that's that's obviously not the case. Um, so I'm just going to look at the AP's timeline for what actually happened. 12.05 a.m., a woman who believed she was being suppressed by YouTube and, and hated the community, or hated the company, opened fire at their headquarters, wounding three people before taking her own life. Investigators said they don't believe Nazim Agdam specifically targeted the three victims Tuesday, but a law enforcement official said Agdam had a long-standing dispute with the company. The official said investigators believe Agdam used the same used the name, I'm sorry, Nazim Sabs online, a woman that the name uh, a website in that name decried YouTube's policies and said that YouTube was trying to suppress content creators. The official spoke to AP on condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss the case publicly. Agdam's father said his daughter was uh, angry. YouTube stopped paying for videos she posted on the platform and warned police she might go to the company's headquarters. Uh, 8.35 a.m. A San Bruno police chief says investigators have finished forensic work on the YouTube building where... The shooter wounded at least three before killing herself. San Bruno Police, Police Chief uh, Ed Barbneri, that's that's a hard name, told KGO 7 News that authorities have not completed a search of the suspect's vehicle. He said they have not found a letter or manifesto to explain Tuesday's lunchtime shooting. Authorities say Nazim Agdam believed she was being suppressed by YouTube. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Barbara Nurmibri also said there's no reason to believe the shooter illegally obtained the semi-automatic pistol used in the shooting. Oh, so it was a legally obtained handgun. Good to know. We're not hearing about that bit. Because fucking of course we're not hearing about that bit. San Bruno Police Chief says YouTube Shooter was angry about policies and practices of the company and had visited a gun range before she drove to the company's headquarters near San Francisco. He says the 39-year-old, Nazim, not even going to try for that middle name, Agdam, got into the building through the parking garage, said Wednesday that investigators are in the process of executing search warrants at two properties. So yeah. This is what happened, <laughs> and then uh, in the 10 a.m. part on this uh, on this little timeline here, police in the California city of Mountain View, about 30 miles from where the YouTube shooting happened, say they did not tell San Bruno police about uh about with their- that's wow AP I thought you actually had copy editors fuck. Said they didn't, say they did not tell San Bruno police about their interactions with the suspect less than 12 hours before the attack. Mountain View police said in a statement Wednesday that they had no reason to do so because they had no in indication from Nassim Agdam that she would be violent and no inf- information from her father indicating that would be a possibility. The father says that's not the case. The statement says Mountain View officers encountered her at 1:40 a.m. sleeping in a car, and did not mention. Sorry, it's funny, and did not mention you too. While officers spoke with her for 20 minutes, officers also did not find any indication that she might have a gun, and spoke with her father on the phone twice. Authorities say that Nazim Agdam was angry about the policies and practices of the company, and visited a gun range before she drove to the company's headquarters in San Bruno, South San Francisco. Police say she used a handgun to shoot and wound two women and a man, and then killed herself.
1: <laughs> oh my
0: goodness! This is a whole situation. This is one about uh. This is another situation where the cops kind of knew that something was going on with her as well, and didn't actually look into it. Uh, supposedly, the father warned the police. And uh, the police did nothing about it. That's that's one of the things that we're kind of uh, that we're that we're kind of seeing that's cropping up in these stories. Is the oh uh, I don't, don't want to call it neglect, but it's kind of just neglect on the part of uh, law enforcement when these kinds of things happen. Regardless, let's move on from that. I just wanted to cover that in just just the official kind of news angle on that. Cause I'm not, I don't actually care that much. It's, it's, I'm not, I would love to sit here and shit in people's mouth over it, but the problem is I'm not, I don't think that's a cool thing to do. So <laughs> I'm not going to, uh, as much as I think, uh, it would be fun to sit here and, and do an entire show on how this is exactly the kind of person that we're told doesn't do this. The simple fact is that everyone knows that anyone can do this. There isn't a type. This woman was a a uh, she was an immigrant or she was a second generation. I'm not actually sure which of those. Um she was a vegan, she was a liberal, she was uh, if you watch any of her videos, and they're all over Twitter now. If you watch any of her videos, she was obviously an insane person. This is like adult swim tier videos, except for she's doing them in earnest. <laughs> um, it's uh, a little frightening, to be honest. But, I mean, that's the kind of situation that there is. Like We can sit here and talk about how this is exactly the type of person that we're told doesn't do this stuff, but... Everybody already knows that this is, that there's not a type for this. Everybody already knows that it's not just white men or it's not just people of color or whatever. It's anyone can do this. Anyone can be the type of person to do this. Anyone can be violent. And that's the part of this that needs to be addressed, I think, socially. We need to start to understand that, that, that anyone can do this kind of thing. But instead, we've got places like Salon, and we've got medium posts, and you know, like the Guardian, and all these other mainstream outlets talking about how this is a white man problem, and everybody's taking their eye off the ball. As far as I'm concerned, nobody's actually looking at the real issues. One of the things that's interesting about this too is that you have a company called you have you have the company of Google that owns YouTube. And I just think it's interesting, and I don't expect them to be able to do this, but I think it's interesting that they've got all this data, and they didn't see this coming from her. Cause she obviously was a was a Google products user. She used YouTube. I don't think there's any reason to think that she didn't use Google as her search engine of choice, or that she didn't use Gmail or whatever. Like I mean, because that's what most people do. But I think it's interesting that they didn't see this coming, given all the information they have, because we have this story from the Guardian. And again, I'm not saying they should have seen it coming or that they should be on the lookout for this stuff. I'm just saying, I, I mean, it, this could have been a story that went a totally different direction. This could have been a story that said Go- that said uh, Google basically minority reported this woman and stopped her before she could actually commit any crimes. That's... I I just see that as having been a possible story here. But... And all that is just because of... And I'm going to look at this Guardian story for this. Are you ready? Here's all the data Facebook and Google have on you. This basically comes from, uh... The opportunities that you have on Facebook and Google both to print out your, uh your not print out but download your data profiles hi car I see you in the chat to print out these uh, these profiles that that contain the data that everybody has on you that Google and Facebook and all these other organizations have on you so let's look at what they found from the Guardian uh, Google knows where you've been Google stores your location if you have location tracking turned on every time you turn on your phone you can see a time, I'm sorry. You can see a timeline of where you've been from the first day you started using Google on your phone. Google knows everything you've ever searched and deleted. Google stores search history across all your devices. That can mean that even if you delete your search history and phone history on one device, it may still have data saved from other devices. Google has an advertisement profile of you. Google creates an advertisement profile based on your information including your location, gender, age, hobbies, career, interests, relationship status, possible weight. And income, Google knows all the apps you use. Google stores information on every app and extension you use. They know how often you use them, where you use them, and who you use uh, them to interact with. That means they know who you talk to on Facebook, what countries you're speaking with, and what time you go to sleep. Google has all your YouTube history. They store all of your YouTube history, so they probably know whether you're going to be a parent soon, if you're a conservative, if you're a progressive, if you're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, if you're feeling depressed or suicidal, if you're anorexic. The data Google has on you can fill millions of Word documents. Google offers an option to download all the data it stores about you. I've requested to download it, and the file is 5.5 gigabytes which is roughly 3 million word documents. And word documents isn't a great way to great way to measure data though. I mean they, they they mean pages? Like pages of a word document? That's not a great way to I don't think that's a great way to measure that. 5.5 gigabytes. That's I mean yeah, it's a big file, but I've downloaded way bigger files than that. And I don't know. I don't, I don't like that. That, to me, is a lazy way of, of putting data in context. Word documents? About how big is the Word document? And how many pages? If you're talking about pages, say pages. I, I don't like that. That's lazy. Facebook has reams and reams of data on you, too. Facebook offers a similar option to download all your information. Mine was roughly 600 megabytes, which is roughly, again, with the 400,000 word documents. Stop. Stop doing that. Facebook stores everything from your stickers to your login location. Facebook also stores what it thinks you might be interested in based off things you've liked and what you and your friends talk about. I apparently like the topic, girl. They can access your webcam and microphone. Yeah, duh, they can. The data they collect includes tracking where you are and what applications you have installed, when you use them, what you use them for, access to your webcam microphone at any time, your contacts, your emails, your calendar, your call history, the messages you send and receive, the files you download, the games you play, your photos and videos, your music, your search history, your browsing history, what radio stations you listen to. Yeah. Yeah, this is, the, this is not a surprise to anyone. There's a lot more on here. There's photographs, there's more location data, there's... I mean... This is the kind of thing that... I was talking about this on the last show. This is one of the things that... Frankly, I was talking about this on the last show in the context of people no longer having an expectation of privacy online, which is a very, very scary thought, given that an expectation of privacy is the only thing that guarantees you privacy in any context. Um... This is this is one of the things that, if you didn't think this was happening, then you haven't been paying attention. And you have not remained aware of what it is that you're doing and using. I don't know if everybody who jumped on the Gmail thing thought that it's because, thought that free meant free. But it doesn't mean free. Something's getting sold, and in the case of Google and Facebook, that thing happens to be you. You're getting sold. Your data gets packaged and it gets sold to advertisers as possible demographics that they can advertise to. You're the product. The advertisers are the customers. And the platform is just a way to get your data. And the fact that people are acting like they didn't know this is a little terrifying. Because it means that people are not aware of what they're doing online. Now, if you, if you know this is happening and you don't care, that's a different situation. That's, honestly, I can probably accept that more than I can accept, well, I didn't think this was happening. Because if you didn't think this was happening, you had your head in the sand. And it's a little upsetting, <laughs> to be frank. Let's move on. This is what, something that I think is kind of funny, actually. That That's not, not the... Not the uh, YouTube channel, kind of funny. This is something that I think is is a little humorous, is that I didn't know this about... And I, I basically say this because I thought this was interesting. The .eu cctld, country code top-level domain, .eu is very tightly controlled. And I wasn't aware of this, but here's a uh, a story from Bleeping Computer. It to March 30th, Brexit. European Commission wants to cancel... 317,000 e, .EU domains owned by Brits. The European Commission announced on Wednesday plans to cancel new registration domain renewals for .EU domains owned by British citizens. EU citizens residing in the UK are also barred from registering or renewing domains. The decision comes as UK officials officially confirmed this week that plans to leave the European Union on March 30th, 2019. The European Commission hopes that by that date no UK citizen will hold a .eu domain as they would be ineligible under the Commission's rules. According to a quarterly report from EURID, the organization that manages .eu domains, there were 317 uh, 286,000 .eu domains registered by the UK by UK citizens at the end of the last year, Q, uh, Q4 2017. The UK holds the 4th most EU domains among all EU countries and is ranked 8th in terms of quarter-to-quarter growth of new .eu domains. Uh, Wiping out this number of registrations will have a negative impact on the .eu cctld as a whole as well as a negative impact on many European-based businesses serving the registrants of 300,000 plus names. That's what's very interesting about this thing is that it's it's crazy petty that that they want to do this. I mean, I mean, do you no longer live on the continent of Europe if you leave the EU? <laughs> I mean, is 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 it, is it no longer accurate to say that you're European if you leave the EU? This is this is the kind of pettiness that. Frankly, this is the kind of pettiness I would expect to see from, like, a Donald Trump. <laughs> from, like, a Trump administration. This is, this is, this is crazy. But what I didn't know about this, and this is what's very interesting to me. Let's look at, I bumped my, uh, ow, ow, ow. That was funny bone, ow. Um, let's look at the .io cctld. That's the one that I use for AIRAD.io, Um. AI Radio. The .io, uh, the Internet Country Code top-level domain, cctld.io, is assigned to the British Indian Ocean Territory. The .io domain is administered by the Internet Computer Bureau, a domain name registry company based in the United Kingdom. Uh, Google's ad targeting treats .io as a generic top-level domain, gtld, because users and webmasters frequently see the, see the domain more generic than country-targeted. That's what's really interesting about this, like things like .io. Let's look at .is. .is. .is is the top-level domain for Iceland. The country code is derived from the first two letters of Iceland, which is ice, the Icelandic for of island. I guess is how I-S-L-A-N-D, which is the Icelandic word for Iceland. <laughs> Registration of .is domains is open for all persons and companies without any special restriction. The very first IIS domain, hi.is, is the domain of the University of Iceland. It was registered in December 11th, 1986, making it one of the earliest ever domain registrations on the internet. Wow, I didn't know IS was allowed for that long. Um, but yeah, .i.s. Is is, uh, IS is a really common, it's almost a generic top-level domain as well. Many domain hacks exist which use the is suffix as the English verb is. Some examples are who.is, this she.is, is, she is, he.is, time.is, my name.is, hello my name.is, pronoun.is. Many names can be used which end with is such as Willis and Ellis. That's what's so something like dot is, something like dot io, these things are totally open. These things are open for registration, but the .eu domain is not. I didn't know that. I thought .eu was just like a lot of other generic top-level domains. I thought this was just like .io or uh, .is, but it isn't. .eu is the country code top-level domain, TCTLD, for the European Union. Launched on December 7, 25, 2005, the domain is available for any person, company, or organization based in the European Economic Area. The EU member states, Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway. The TLD is administered by EURID a consortium originally consisting of the National CCTLD Registry Operators of Belgium, Sweden, and Italy. Later joined by the National Registry Operator of the Czech Republic. Trademark owners are were able to submit registrations through a sunrise period in an effort to prevent cyber-squatting. Cyber Full registration started on 7 April 2006. Approved by ICANN on 22 March 2005. That's what's really interesting about this, is that you have to go through EURID.EU slash EN, if you speak English. You have to go through that and register your domain name through this organization. You cannot... This is crazy. This is... I didn't know that this was so restrictive. You have to... uh, Become a registrar. Accreditation in just four simple steps. How do you do that? Uh, The benefits of working with EURID, a simple accreditation process, administrative and technical support for the EU language of your choice, dedicated account management, an easy way to manage your portfolio through the password-protected registrar extranet, uh, rewarding meeting, uh, networking meetings, and annual launches where you can learn about our latest developments, online training via our webinar platform, programs with an (laughs) A, And initiatives enabling you to straight, to strengthen and expand your market position. So there could be other registrars, but they have to work. Everything goes through EURID. I didn't know that this was... I'm sorry this is taking so long, but I, I was fascinated that this was such a locked down system. <laughs> I didn't actually know. I thought it was open the way that I.O. and I.S. are, but apparently not. Let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk about free speech for just a hot second. We're going to go to FIRE. The organization uh, FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, thefire.org. Uh, March 30th, federal court upholds college rule barring lawyer participation in campus hearings. In a recent decision, the United States District Court for the Western District of Pennsylvania ruled that a college student did not have the right to To the active assistance of counsel during a campus disciplinary proceeding while simultaneous criminal charges were pending, the decision strikes a blow to an essential student due process right. The case featured uh, Pennsylvania State University student Grace Sims, who was criminally charged with assault, disorderly conduct, and harassment, as well as several student conduct code violations. Facing possible jail time, she sought to have an attorney present. Uh, an attorney represent her during her campus disciplinary hearing. After all, statements made by students in campus tribunals have been found admissible against them in subsequent criminal proceedings, yet Penn State refused to allow her attorney to address the disciplinary panel during the hearing. Sims was eventually found responsible for the student conduct charges while the criminal charges were later dropped. Sims then sued, alleging that Penn State violated a due process right to have an attorney actively participate in her hearing. She argued that Penn State's refusal to grant this right created a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't scenario. She could either remain silent at the hearing, rendering herself defenseless against the university's charges and all but assure the imposition of sanctions, or she could speak out at the risk of her words coming back to haunt her in criminal court. She asserted that Penn State unjustly forced her into this precarious position, pressing pressing her to face a troubling decision. That implicated her Fifth Amendment due process right against the compelled self against compelled self-incrimination. What's very very interesting about this is that I was this in this exact same scenario, granted uh, up against some uh, much lesser charges than assault and things like that. But I was in this exact same scenario, uh, and I think there's actually an episode of the show where I talk about it. I was in this scenario when. I was arrested for, uh, they, I was officially charged with uh, public intoxication, but I was not intoxicated. In fact, I requested that they test me uh, to see what my blood alcohol content was, or even, I, I actually volunteered to take a field sobriety test and the officer refused, and that's on video. So, the, uh, the officer refused to actually test me, and they hauled me in, and I spent the night in jail, and I had to deal with this whole rigmarole and blah, blah, blah. I ended up giving a lawyer $100, and the whole case was dropped in, and in, uh, in what was the language that they used? The whole case was dropped in uh, the interest of justice. So, it was bullshit to begin with. I just refused to kiss the ring, and the cop got angry. But that's not the point. I was in this exact same situation at, at my university when I had to go in to the student conduct hearing because I'd been arrested on campus. I had to go into the student conduct hearing. And the what a lot of people don't know is that for these student conduct hearings, the uh, the burden of the, the the burden of proof is, is a lot the uh, is a lot lower. They don't have to prove that you did it. For you to be guilty in a student conduct hearing, they don't have to prove that you broke the rules. All they have to do is decide whether or not the uh, there is a preponderance of evidence that you did. Right, the the shadow of a doubt rule doesn't apply. If there's any doubt that you did it, it doesn't matter because the school may still find you responsible. It's it's preponderance of the evidence. Right? If most of the evidence points to the idea that you did it, then you're fucked. The school's going to hold you responsible. And that's one of the things that, that occurs here as well. And I didn't know this, and this makes this extra bad. I didn't know that statements made by students in campus tribunals have been found admissible against them in subsequent criminal proceedings. I didn't know that. That's fucked up. Because if, if this and I don't know how it is in different states, but if this particular jurisdiction is not allowing you to have representation in there, and yet they're still gonna take those statements and use them again and use them against you in a criminal case, where you're dealing with, you know, the city or, or the county, or even the state, if if they're gonna take those and they're gonna use that against you in that case that's compelled speech that's that is uh that that is an absolute uh thats absolute violation of due process that's crazy I didn't know that they could take the things that you say in that situation and use it in a criminal case against you that's that's actually very frightening because I know that there are students, and I didn't do this because I didn't need to, but I know that there are students who will tell the conduct board one thing in order to discredit the evidence, and then they'll have to go fight it from a different angle in, in court. I know that this happens. And it's not that it's not that they're lying to one party or the other. It's just that they have to attack things from different angles because there's different levels of of responsibility. Again, it's it's the it's the the reasonable doubt in a criminal case, and it's preponderance of the evidence when you're dealing with a school conduct board. So this is the. Uh, this is this is the problem this is insanity I, I I actually wasn't aware of that that changes this whole situation this changes the whole thing because now if they can use that against you if you if you said one thing to the school's conduct board if you said one thing to them to discredit the evidence unless you would say that you were successful and then they take that to, the, the criminal court, if the, if the prosecution in the criminal case say that they want the transcript or they want the audio from that hearing, they can then say, well, what you're telling us doesn't match what you told the conduct board, not recognizing that that's two different situations with two different levels of responsibility, two different burdens of proof. In the same case, that that may necessitate attacking things differently. This is, oh man, this is bad news. I have a feeling if these people don't run out of money, this is going to the Supreme Court. As well, it should. This is crazy. Uh, Federal court, uh, actually it's the uh, United States District Court for the Western District of Pennsylvania. Western Pennsylvania. So it hasn't hit the circuit yet. It's possible the circuit will, uh... Will... Turn this around. Or they'll uphold it. You know, either way, but... Depending upon how the circuit court acts, this is probably going to go to the Supreme Court. At least I would try to put it there. But, I also don't have that much money, so... (laughs) I don't know if I could or not. (laughs) Another story from, uh... The Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. Georgetown fails to live up to free speech promises by not recognizing pro-choice student group. Georgetown University's uh, claims concerning this deeply held religious convictions. It's deeply held religious convictions regarding abortion are in conflict with the university's numerous free speech promises to student and and faculty. Again. H-something-Y-A-S for choice, I'm not really sure what this name is supposed to be, is a pro-choice student group that's been the subject of institutional ire at Georgetown for years. and the center of an ongoing saga involving refusal of recognition and frequent censorship by administration, this month, calls have been renewed for Georgetown to live up to its free speech promises and officially recognize the embattled group. Although the university promises its students and faculty that the right to engage in free expression, it has repeatedly failed... Uh, its students and faculty the right to, blah, blah, blah. It has failed to live up to these commitments. This is not the first time FIRE has criticized the call administration for promising a free exchange of ideas and delivering punishment and censorship instead. Unlike public institutions that are fully bound by the First Amendment, private universities like Georgetown are free to prioritize other values above free expression. However... When such institutions publicly advertise and guarantee freedom of expression to students and faculty as Georgetown has, they are morally, perhaps legally, bound to uphold those promises. A recent editorial authored by the editorial board of the Georgetown Student Newspaper, the Hoya, aptly points out the tension between Georgetown's policies and practices. The board writes, For a university to openly silence a student group based on whether or not it aligns with the Catholic or Jesuit values is not only wrong, it is in violation of Georgetown's own speech policies. So, We're going to have to see this lined out because if a private university says that they are going to honor free expression, that they're going to say that you are allowed to voice your opinions, to have your student groups, to do all of this and that and the other thing, and they turn around and they start punishing those groups, uh, it's very possible that they could run into some problems with truth in advertising. It's very possible they could run into some problems with, frankly, since it's part of their actual, uh, if, if, the, uh, if the Hoya is, is, uh, is to be believed, if it's in violation of Georgetown's own speech policies, those policies could be argued to serve as a contract between the students and, and faculty and the university. Because if I'm not mistaken, you have to agree to those policies to actually go to the school. I know I had to sign a piece of paper. Of course, I went to a a state university. But I had to sign a piece of paper that said that I was going to abide by those policies. So, it's, it's very, very interesting that if such a thing could be considered a contract, and I think it probably could, depending on the lawyer that you have, I think it's very interesting that they would be allowed to essentially not... Follow their end of the contract. If the speech policies say you're allowed to have whatever opinions you want to have, then you should be expected to be allowed to have whatever opinions you want to have. And to not be punished or censored for it. Now again, this is a private university. There's no First Amendment issue here. The First Amendment doesn't apply. Because this university, supposedly, operates independent of the state. Meaning they're a private organization, like Twitter. They can censor if they want to. But supposedly they've said they don't want to, and that's where you have the problem. Let's talk about my favorite Quillet article right now. My favorite Quillet article uh, that exists right now is Andrew Kelman's Beyond All Warnings, The Radical Assault on Truth in the Law, published on April 2nd, 2018. This one is not... Uh, one of the shorter ones. This one is is a little longer than um, than some of the previous ones. But I uh, I, I again I love 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 Quillet articles uh, because they are nonpartisan. All they care about is free expression, for the most part. And uh, let's let's go ahead and read a piece of this. Just a piece of it. Here we go. Uh, the second paragraph in. There are few signs that Peterson may be right. There are a few signs that Peterson may be right, and the significant influence for postmodern neo-Marxists on the legal academy is undeniable and pernicious. For more than a generation, a coalition of radical scholars has been schooling students in doctrines they consider above criticism. In doing so, they have successfully smeared their enemies while perverting progressive aims of racial and sexual equality, and have replaced them with a regressive and authoritarian philosophy of power above all. This philosophy behind this movement, known as critical legal theory, has its roots in the 1970s, when postmodern neo-Marxist radicals began challenging and overturning accepted norms and standards, officially founded in 1977 at a, con- at a Congress of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the roots of, legal, of critical legal theory, also known as critical legal studies, extended back to the protests surrounding civil rights, animated by the ideas of Martin Luther King Jr. Guys when we type martin luther king we have to say junior at the end <laughs> and the terrible injustices of the jim crow legal system yeah so this talks about the uh, the way that law and the way that people are taught law has been has been uh, kind of taken over by what they call postmodern neo-marxist and what what some people in in i think angrier circles call social marxism or cultural marxism And I found this article to be very interesting. So, if you want some information about that, again, Quillet articles are always smart. And they are, uh, they are nonpartisan as shit. And I really appreciate them. Because they are, uh, because they remain nonpartisan, what I like about it is because they remain nonpartisan, they are pretty much immune to a lot of the more common attacks from the, uh, the blue noses on the left. They are immune from a lot of the neo-Nazi or, or, you know, literally Hitler or racist or all this other stuff. They're immune to all that because they're very non-partisan. In fact, I would venture to guess that a lot of the people who write for Quillet actually fucking hate Donald Trump. And Republicans in general, as well as Democrats in general. <laughs> I would venture to guess that, and, and I, I would not be surprised... If I were to be uh, proven right, there. Let's move the hell on to our main event, our main topic. Our main topic today. Um, I've already posted the uh, the the article, the piece, the the blog post, whatever uh, that that kind of serves to inform this particular discussion. But I've I was recently talking to. I posted on the Rogue File, by the way, RogueFile.com. I was recently talking to a uh, a family member who said some things during this conversation that made it clear to me that she didn't know the philosophy that the Bill of Rights is based on. And I'm an anarchist. I don't I don't think that a piece of paper has any particular special power to keep government from engaging in restrictions on people's liberties, right? But, it it bothered me that she wasn't aware of where her rights came from. Especially with, like, in the context of the Bill of Rights. Like, in the context of that philosophy. Where her rights supposedly came from. It really bothered me. Because I thought, I thought, personally, because I'm, I'm the... I'm the nerd that I am and I and I'm the nerd about the things that I'm a nerd about, right? I thought it was kind of common knowledge for people who were not on the left. Cuz people on the left will never understand. But I thought if you weren't on the left it was it was kind of common knowledge. But apparently I, I wasn't right. And that was that that was weird for me. So I decided to address it. Um in the piece the origins of the Bill of Rights i on the rogue file right now. I'm just going to take some, uh, I'm just going to read from it a little bit and then maybe break out and and talk about some different things. The first thing that I do in this piece that I think is, is, I think it's valuable to do it is I talk about the things that aren't right. Um, That's one of the things that actually John Locke, who we'll talk about later, John Locke, when he was talking about what government power is, has two chapters about what it isn't before he actually talks about what it is. And so I wanted to kind of, I, I, I want to kind of talk about what, where your rights don't come from, right? And this is all in this context of this particular set of philosophies. I want to talk for a second about where your rights don't come from. And and also, I just love, 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 love shitting in Thomas Hobbes' mouth. Because this motherfucker has been the most destructive force in political philosophy, If we don't have a Thomas Hobbes, we don't have a Rousseau. And Rousseau is the basis of everything that's wrong with political thought. I think Thomas Hobbes is one of the most destructive thinkers in history. Thomas Hobbes wrote in Leviathan that man's primary natural right was... "...to use his own power, as he will himself, for the preservation of his own nature, that is to say his own life, and consequently of doing anything which, in his own judgment and reason, he shall conceive to be the aptest means thereunto." Hobbes believed that that's end quote by the way. Hobbes believed that in the state of nature, man would be in a constant state of war of all against all, a situation in which people would kill, steal, and enslave to their hearts' content and in service of their survival. I've noted before that Hobbes was wrong about the state of nature. His foundational notion, the way he believed humans have lived, has been refuted by modern evolutionary sciences and anthropology. The fact of early human existence is frankly antithetical to the fiction on which Hobbes based the whole of his logic. Human beings most likely evolved in groups, and from there I link to uh, some proof. Not as lonesome, solitary individuals, but first as large extended families and later as tribal communities. As these communities grew and evolution continued, things like morals developed as social expectations, and the animal instinct to reward pro-social behavior stuck around to reinforce them. These foundational moral expectations serve as a good basis for the natural rights of humans. Ideas that have existed in tribal communities and early civilizations as far back as humans were able to conceive of social behavior in a way that allows for higher order thinking include moratoriums on things like murder and theft. With exceptions, killing and stealing have always been considered to be bad behavior. Some of the theories concerning the development of moral expectations in early man include the notion of the development of empathy in humans and the evolutionary necessity of a disgust response, coinciding to allow individuals to see themselves in the victims of such crimes. Others involve the same disgust response interacting with the necessity of cooperation for early man's survival, thus actions which could harm such social cohesion become taboo. Further, the social brain theory posits that human beings have experienced a high selection for the development of a complex neocortex, which allows for greater social cognition and the development of theory of mind, which serves to allow the animal to infer the thoughts or emotions of another in the group. We also call this empathy. There are other theories regarding the development of moral expectations in humans, but none of them change these important relevant facts they developed, and the few that are universal have led the social animal that is man to punish the acts of theft and murder first with social consequences and later through law. So fuck Thomas Hobbes, he was wrong. The state of nature is not a lonesome person walking through a desert coming upon another person and them immediately trying to kill each other human beings evolved in groups we evolved with others like us there's more support for this theory the idea that the idea that human beings have a maximum of about of about 300 to 350 social connections that they can keep straight in their head at one time right i forgot what that number is called but it has a name about 300 to 350 social connections that you can keep straight in your brain. Maximum. And this has led some scientists to believe that this must have been about the maximum size of a tribe during man's development. While man was not quite man, perhaps 300 to 350 was the necessary uh, social, uh, uh, social quotient for human beings in an evolutionary environment, right? There's a lot of support for this idea. Hobbes was wrong. And everything that he based on his idea of the state of nature, the whole concept behind the Leviathan, everything, is wrong. Because the foundation of all those philosophies are wrong. It just does not follow. Hobbes is incorrect. Which means, quite frankly, so is Rousseau. Because Rousseau's whole, the, the entire, a lot of the ideas that Rousseau came forward with that don't involve, you know, education and things like that, a lot of Rousseau's political ideas are based on this kind of Hobbesian thought. The whole idea of a social contract comes from Rousseau. The general will comes from Rousseau. And it's all based on this Hobbesian idea that comes from Leviathan. And all these Hobbesian ideas that are in Leviathan are based on the idea of a state of nature that never existed. It was never real. And so going back into kind of the things that inform the Bill of Rights and, and where rights come from in the Bill of Rights, in or in the philosophies that inform the Bill of Rights, right? John Locke is one of the first popular philosophers to take the basic moral notions that find their origins in our mere humanity, as stated above, that murder and theft are wrong, and organize them into a system of natural rights not to be infringed. These rights to Locke include rights to life, liberty, and estate. The right to life, meaning that obviously everyone has a right to live. The right to liberty, meaning that everyone has the right to live as they please. And the right to estate, meaning that every individual has the right to ownership of all that they procure and produce. Some approach these rights with the following challenge. What happens if the right to liberty and the rights to estate and life find themselves in conflict? Meaning simply... What if I want to kill or steal? I have the liberty to, don't I? The simple answer is no. Any action which infringes on the natural rights of another falls outside of that which can be called a right as it strips another person of their right. Such an act is simply stated as an illegitimate action. The illegitimate procurement of property is called theft. The illegitimate killing is called murder. Right? Another way to arrive at the same conclusion is to follow the simple logic of self-ownership. If a human is not allowed to uh, is not to be owned by another human, then a human must own themselves. This is necessary for a human to take action and utilize their freedom, their reason, and their other rights. It follows that if no one tells a person what to do, then that person must tell, must tell themselves or choose what to do. This establishes self-ownership in principle. If one owns oneself, then one must own one's body, one's mind, and that which one's body produces. Property, that which is one's own and no one else's, is a good way to define one's life and body. But it also applies to one's labor as a product of that life and body. If I choose to utilize my labor labor to weave a blanket, and then I trade that blanket for a bushel of apples, I have decided to make some property and trade that property or convert it into different property that is logically equally mine modernize, if I choose freely and without coercion to utilize my labor and sell it to someone for whatever price they're willing to pay, then they give me currency in return. I can then give currency, a transferable representation of the labor which my body has produced, to a merchant for his or her wares. Does that transaction not then extend my ownership of myself to the items that I purchase? Does that transaction not necessitate that I own those items as my property? I have yet to see a convincing argument to the contrary. Maybe an anarchist. But that does not stop me from understanding the logic behind such a document as the Bill of Rights. The Constitution of the United States of America utilizes the same logic as the Declaration of Independence in the establishment of inalienable rights. That we are endowed by our Creator by certain inalienable rights, right? Following a decidedly Lockean tradition, the Bill of Rights answers specific grievances aired in the Declaration of Independence using Thomas Jefferson's variation on Locke's natural rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Which is uh, not my favorite thing ever done. I think Jefferson made a mistake doing that. But because these rights are inherent to humanity, the Bill of Rights serves only to enumerate those rights which government may not dissolve. As stated above, the very language of the amendments makes this clear. Congress shall make no law. All right. It's not a restriction on what you can do, or, or an allowance for what you can do. It is a restriction on what government is allowed to do. In theory. Again, words on a napkin don't do much. So there it is, the origin of your rights based on the philosophies that inform the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I personally do not agree with all the conclusions that people like Locke and Jefferson reached. I do not agree with the methods of legitimation of government and law. I prefer the logic of 19th century lawyer, abolitionist, and scholar Lysander Spooner. I'll leave you with this excerpt from one of Spooner's mini-essays, appropriately titled Natural Law. What then is legislation? Is an assumption by one man or body of men of absolute, irresponsible dominion over all other men whom they can subject to their power. It is the assumption of one man or body of men to subject all other men to their will and service. It is the assumption by one man or body of men of a right to abolish outright all the natural rights, all the natural liberty of other men. To make all other men their slaves. To arbitrarily dictate to all other men what they may or may not do, what they may and may not have, and what they may and may not be. It is, in short, the assumption of a right to banish the principle of human rights, the principle of justice itself from off the earth, and set up their own personal will, pleasure, and interest in its place. All this and nothing less is involved in the very idea that there can be any such thing as human legislation that is obligatory upon those whom it is imposed." Rock and fucking roll, Lysander. Rock and fucking roll. That's about all we're gonna have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at DinoFiles, no spaces, no dashes. You can find this and other shows at AI Radio, A I R A D dot I O. The anime show's still going strong. That's Ryan's show. He's a great guy, great host. You can find the pieces that coincide with these podcasts over at Roguefile. Roguefile.com The uh, free expression article that I wrote last week was, uh, I think, pretty fun. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. This show is part of the Alternative Internet Radio Podcast Network. For more great shows like this, visit air at a i r a d dot i o. Roguefile.com slash donate.